Hey, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we have spent some time looking at God's faithfulness the first couple weeks, and now we're in a section of Luke, which is the majority of the section of Luke, where we're looking at God's love for the lost. And uh, I don't know if you were here last April. We weren't in this building. We were at a different building. But last April, we did a series called Called Out Ones. Uh, it was a five-week or six-week series, and we just talked about what in the first three centuries made the world skeptical of Christians. Like, what was it that the, the, early, the early church was running up against? What, what did the surrounding culture oppress them for? And we found that it actually was not necessarily what they believed that led to oppression, that led to skepticism, but mainly because of what they did. And two of those things, one was that they were a community of forgiveness and reconciliation, and the other one was that they were hospitable to the poor and suffering. Where'd they get that idea from? Like if you were a kid in sun, and you grew up in Sunday school at church, right, you know the answer is always Jesus. They got the idea from Jesus, right? So when the teacher in Sunday school would ask you, kids, you might even experience this at Liberty Kids at some point, right? What is gray, eats acorns, lives in a tree, and has a bushy tail? You and I all know the answer is a squirrel, but in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus, Right, so Jesus is the answer to that question as well. So this idea of care for the of the for the poor and suffering to be a community of forgiveness and reconciliation that came from Jesus. Is not an option for Christians. It's not something you get to choose to do or not. It's a requirement. Because if God loves the lost and we are the people of God, we should love the lost as well. So it's not an option. But the lost don't always look the same. I think typically as Christians, we think of the lost as sinners. But many times it's those on the margins of society that Jesus sees as lost. So Jesus constantly shared God's love with those on the margins of society, the outliers, the outcasts, the outsiders, who we talked about last week, the wrong people. And sometimes that got Jesus into trouble, especially with the religious crowd. And so today what I want us to look at and want us to talk about is how God wants us to share his love with those on the margins so that they can experience his offer of forgiveness, his healing touch, and the transforming love in Jesus. So I want to talk first about God's forgiveness and healing touch. Look at the first story, and then we'll look at the second story and talk about Jesus' transforming love. So look at verse 17 again. We'll read the verse 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no one, sorry, no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees and the scribes began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and, quick, and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus, is, Jesus offers God's forgiveness and healing touch to the suffering. Up to this point in Luke, and we haven't touched on any of these, um, all of these, but many of the people have been coming to Jesus to be healed. You have, a, you have a leper coming, wanting to be healed by Jesus, a man who has, has been impressed by a demon coming, wanting to be healed by Jesus. You have Simon Peter's mother-in-law who needs to be healed by Jesus when she has a fever. And uh, like a good mother-in-law, after she fever is done, she gets up and she starts cooking a meal, right? It's a, it's a really great story. It's a beautiful story. But everyone in, around the, in first century Palestine, in first century world, were coming to get healed by Jesus. And now we have a paralytic doing the same thing. I remember when my mom had breast cancer before she passed away in 2012, and I remember how cancer permeated every aspect of our lives. All of our conversations felt like they were about cancer. Financial decisions revolved around cancer. People at church or at work would say, hey, how's your mom doing with cancer? Cancer touched every aspect of our lives. In fact, it became part of our identity as a family, especially my mom's identity. When you suffer from a condition, whatever it may be, that condition becomes part of who you are. And your condition ends up defining you and even affects every decision you make. For instance, I have a friend who suffers from Crohn's disease. And he can't go anywhere outside of a certain radius from hospital just in case he needs emergency treatment. We don't know who this man is. He's just, as the Bible says, a man who was paralyzed. And we're not told how this man got this way. Was he born this way? Did some type of accident happen that made him be paralyzed? Did he do something sinful and God judged him and punished him and made him paralyzed. That last one is unlikely. And Jesus makes that clear that that's most oftentimes not the case. But the Bible doesn't tell us how this man became paralyzed. And interestingly, Jesus never asks. Jesus doesn't ask sufferers how they got into their situation. You can scan the Gospels. I never once can remember a situation where Jesus said, hey, how did you get this way? And you might say, well, he's God, so he already knows, and I would quickly respond and reply to that. He's God, so he doesn't care. See, we look at certain people and blame them for their situation before we decide whether or not we're going to help 
We say, how did you get this way before I decide if I'm going to help you? So, for instance, we won't give a homeless person money unless we know that they're not going to spend it on drugs or alcohol. Or we'll look at certain ethnic groups and we'll tell them it's their fault that their neighborhoods are this way and we'll help them if they clean up their act first. But Jesus doesn't do that. He cares about people as they are now. Not what he wishes they were or would be. It's something we said here around here a lot, and it's not mine. I stole from somebody else. And sometimes you listen to so many sermons, you don't know who you stole it from. But God's not in love with the future version of you. He's in love with the current version of you. God's not in love with the future version of the suffering. He's He's in love with the current version of the sufferer. So this man was paralyzed. His condition defines him. Everybody knows he's paralyzed. Everybody can see he's paralyzed, right? It's pretty obvious. Paralysis is part of every aspect of this man's life. He can't get a job. He can't go to the synagogue. And if it's true that there's this prophet walking around healing people, he would have to hope that somehow this prophet would find him, walk by him, and decide to heal him. But he had friends. He had friends who saw his condition, took pity on him, and brought him to Jesus. And so I wonder if you think about the role you play in bringing someone to Jesus. There are people in your life that I don't know, that I can never get to, that will never be my friend, but you know them. You can get to them. You can invite them and bring them to Jesus, and God may be using you to bring your friend to Jesus. Think about this. God loves you. God loves the lost so much that he puts you in their lives. God loves the suffering so much that he put you in their life. But I also wonder how many of us need friends to help us to get to Jesus and we just aren't willing to admit it. See, if you want to know Jesus, you need to be around those who are going to show you him who are going to bring you to him. You need to go to church. You need to go to home meetings. You need to spend time with other Christians so that when you're having trouble getting to Jesus, something inside of you is just struggling and you feel like you're suffering and sinful and you can't get to Jesus, they can carry you to him. I helped plant a church several years ago in a different part of the region. And I remember one man there who just was just beat up over his sin, weeping over his sin. And he had asked God for forgiveness and he had trouble embracing it. And time came for communion. And I still to this day remember another man getting up from his seat, seeing his brother in the Lord crying over his sin. I remember him go up to him and say, Hey, I know you feel like you can't get up to the table today, 
I want you to know you're forgiven. Come, I will carry you to the table. And I watched them get up and walk to the table together. Many of us experience a type of spiritual paralysis because we try to get to Jesus on our own. Did you know that over the course of the pandemic, they did studies on this, that the only people who have improved their mental health, the only people of everyone that's been surveyed who has in, had improved mental health on average is those who attended church weekly. You don't attend or you attend less than weekly, your mental health dropped. Like, do we think that happens by accident? The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone and you need others to help you get to Jesus. I need to be able to look around and maybe I'm not getting something out of the worship service today, but they are and I want to be there for them and I want to connect with them and I want to grab a cup of coffee at the end with them and I want to see, pick up my kids and bump into their kids and then we're all bumping into each other in the hallway, right? That's all important. Every aspect of that is meaningful and important. And that's why so many of us, when we were, we were locked down and we were strictly online, we're like, I can't wait to be back in person again. Because something about being together is more valuable, is better than being apart. Christian life's not meant to be lived alone. You need others to get you to Jesus. And while this is a wonderful story of friendship, healing, and faith, this story is less about the healing and more about the forgiveness that Jesus offers this man. Jesus sees the man and he forgives his sins. Then he heals him. Did you catch that when we read the story? Everyone would have expected that a man, come, a paralytic man coming down from a roof. I don't know if you've ever been anywhere where somebody's coming down from a roof. I have never been there. But as soon as that person's dropped before Jesus, everyone would have expected Jesus to heal him. Everybody knows Jesus is healing prophet. He walks around. Jesus will do this. No doubt about it. But to forgive his sins, that's a different matter altogether. And that's why the Pharisees respond that way. This man needed forgiveness. See, Jesus doesn't want to just fix the outside. He wants to fix the inside too. Jesus cares about both and wants to fix both. There's certain parts of the Christian tradition where we emphasize one over the other, right? Where we won't take care of people's outside conditions because we got to make sure their internal conditions are taken care of first. But Jesus is it's always both. And some, some other aspects of the Christian tradition have emphasized just taking care of the outside and never taking care of the inside of a person, never worrying about their sin in their hearts. Jesus cares about both. He cares about whether your neighbors can eat and if they are following him. Both. You don't say, I'll give you a piece of bread once you accept Jesus into your life. Say, here's a piece of bread. Can I tell you about Jesus? Jesus, in fact, if, if you noticed in the story, he heals the man to prove he has authority to forgive sins. But the religious types, they don't like it. See, the Pharisees weren't an official body in the first century in Judaism. They're not an official body. 
They're not a religious body. They are more of a pressure group. So you remember a few weeks ago we talked about this, right? They're more of a pressure group that would set up these extreme rules that everyone had to keep. And the reason why they did that is because they wanted to make sure that there was an external distinction between themselves and the Romans and, the, and themselves and all the compromising Jews, particularly the Sadducees, right? The Sadducees were the guys in the pockets of the Romans. And the Pharisees wanted to prove that they were not that, what you may not know this, what you may not know is that the Pharisees' philosophy was closest to Jesus' philosophy. Which is probably why they're always around him. They like what he's doing. They just think he's going about it the wrong way. That's why the Pharisees are always there. They're like, hey, we hear about you, we hear what you're doing, but you're doing it the wrong way. So they're in this story close to Jesus to get a look at him. Because the Pharisees say, yeah, absolutely, forgiveness is possible for the paralytic, absolutely, but there's a right way to do it, Jesus. And you doing it in somebody's house is not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to go through the temple system and the high priest. But they can't see that Jesus is the greater temple and the true high priest. They're physically close to Jesus, but they are far from his heart. It's oftentimes those who are closest to Jesus that are the furthest from his heart. Some of you, that would hit you on your way home. It's often those who are closest to Jesus that are the furthest from his heart. And sometimes it's those very people who end up getting in the way of Jesus. There was an article recently where they did a study about young Christians leaving the faith, and then they actually found out that we actually see young Christians walking away from Christianity not because they don't believe what Christianity teaches, but because they don't believe Christians believe what Christianity teaches. Because their actions betray them. Because Christians end up being about so many other things rather than Jesus. Young people are like, we don't want that. We're not against Jesus. We're not against what Christianity teaches. But you don't act like you actually believe this. Most young people aren't leaving the church because of Christ. They're leaving because of us. And if you had to identify a, group, a Jewish group in the first century that liberty could most likely fall into, it would be the Pharisees. This is the group. This is the group because why? They take the Bible seriously. We take the Bible seriously. They believe in miracles. We believe in miracles. They believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We say it all the time in the Apostles' Creed. They believe in being different from the world. We spent a series last April about being called out from the world. We know all the right stuff about Jesus, but we have to be careful that our hearts are not far from his heart. Right? You can live in the same house, eat at the same table, sit in the same living room, sleep in the same bed as your spouse, but be no more than roommates. Because you've lost the love that comes from knowing that person. You're physically close to them, but you're far from their heart. See, Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts, but he questioned what? Their hearts. Why do you say in your hearts? Somewhere along the lines, Christians, we've had fallen in the trap, as most people have, is that see, we see humans 
as primarily thinking beings, like brains on a stick. So if we think the right things, we'll do the right things, and that's exactly where the Pharisees are. But Jesus says time and time again, the problem is not, isn't just about what we think, it's about what we love that motivates us. See, the Pharisees love believing the right thing more than doing the right thing. And is it good to think right things about God? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. But we need to know God more than just in our heads. Our hearts have to also be connected to him, and our hands have to also be active in reaching the lost, those on the margins. It has to be head, heart, and hands. Jesus actually says, he challenges the Pharisees in chapter 11 of Luke. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, right? He's pronouncing this judgment on the Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God, right? They know all the right things, but they're not doing the right things, Jesus says. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you have it backwards. You think all the right things. But your hearts are far from God's heart. And because your hearts are far from God's heart, your hands are far from his hands. So you, couldn't, you wouldn't be caught dead getting your hands dirty to bring justice to those on the margins. James K.A. Smith says that you are what you love. You aren't what you think. You are what you love. If you love the externals like the Pharisees do, rules that make you clean on the outside, or if you love being right or thinking the right things, you are in danger of becoming arrogant, self-righteous, unforgiving, legalistic, close to Jesus mentally, but far from his heart spiritually. And maybe you're here today, and that's been your experience with Christians. They believe all the right stuff but their hearts are not like Jesus' heart in any way. And the reason we do this is because thinking means that I never have to do anything, right? I can sit on my couch at home and think about Jesus all day long. I can think all the right things. I can read all the right books, but the hard work is done in having my heart connected to Jesus. And then the uncomfortable thing is to get off my couch and get my hands dirty by caring for those on the margin. But we know anybody can tell you that who's ever raised kids that the hard and uncomfortable work is what makes life worth living. It's absolutely easier to think about how you would raise your kids than actually do it. Right? Parents in the room, you, you know this. You're like, oh, I read all the right books. Oh, the people at Target whose kids are freaking out. Before you had kids, you were like, what's wrong with those parents? Why can't they get their kids under control? Now as a parent, you're like, what did that kid do to their parents that made their parents react that way? I made a, a thing, I made like a thing with just like, somebody says to me, Hey man, I'm really sorry. I like I don't know what's going on. The kids like my kids just like laying in the aisle at Target, just freaking out. I just say, "Yo, bro, been there." Like those of you who don't have kids, I love you, but you know nothing, nothing about what it means to raise kids. We love you, 
but nothing. You can say, I'm going to raise my kids this way, and they're going to turn out this way. I'm telling you, anybody who's been a parent and people who are ahead of me, I know nothing about raising teenagers as I enter teenage years, right? This is also another side note. This is for free. This is also why we gather together with people who are older than us to gain their wisdom. Be like, please, I don't know what it's like to have a 13-year-old. Please tell me what to do. Lean on each other. But it's harder and more comfortable to... It's more uncomfortable and it's harder to connect with your kids' hearts and raise them up than to think about how to do that. And any parent who's, who's a seasoned parent will tell you it's hard and uncomfortable. And man, they are tired, but it's worth it. Are you doing the hard but worthwhile work of caring for those on the margins? When was the last time you brought someone before Jesus? When was the last time you told someone about him when was the last time you evangelized? When was the last time you invited somebody to church? When was the last time you went out of your way to care for the poor or the food insecure or the homeless? When was the last time you sat with someone who's just been through the ringer and cried with them? And we see not only Jesus' offer of God's healing, touch, and, offer, and forgiveness, but we also see God's transforming love because you look at verse 27. And after this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, which actually is Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. This is his other name, Levi. He's sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes, here they go again, grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? God's love has the power to transform sinners. The call of Levi is significant, right? There it wasn't anyone in the first century world that was more hated than a tax collector. Like, I know we all hate the IRS. This is like the IRS on steroids. And if you work for the IRS, my bad. We love you, but we hate what you do. <laughs> Just messing. Well, like, this is like the IRS on steroids, right? N.T. Wright says this. says tax collectors back then were extortionists. And more than that, they were working for the Romans or for Herod, and their necessary contact with Gentiles put them under political suspicion. Everybody thought they were Jewish men collaborating with the enemy. And then there's ritual exclusion as well, that they might be unclean. And here's Jesus again going out on the margins and calling one of the marginalized, and if he didn't, we wouldn't have the first gospel in the New Testament. And because Levi experienced the love of Jesus, he left everything behind to follow him and wanted to have a party to invite all his other tax collector buddies. Now Jesus isn't just forgiving sinners, he's openly chilling with them. Teenagers, right? You might feel this way, like if you ever went in your school cafe, right? Who you sit with means a lot. But back then, if you had a meal with someone, it was like you were saying, I'm one of them. And the Pharisees, they catch on to this and they grumbled, which is the same word the Old Testament uses when the people of God grumble towards God in the wilderness. And they ask his disciples, notice that they ask, they have a problem with Jesus, so they go to his disciples. Side note this again. This is for free. 
People often like to come to you and try to trip you up rather than just go to the words of Jesus himself, right? And so, but Jesus answers them in verse 31. He says, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus saying, if you think you're already good, I can't do anything for you. Not because I'm not powerful enough to, but because you don't want my transforming love. Because your hearts are far from me. But if you can admit, Jesus is saying, that you're spiritually sick, that you're spiritually dying, and that you need life-saving medicine of my love, I'm here to give it to you. See, the story of the Bible is that we're all sick and dying in our sin, physically, but also spiritually. But it's those who can't accept that who end up rejecting Jesus. But those of us who are honest and we admit our need can receive his love. See, Jesus came to offer you and me his saving love. And that love can transform you. It can change your life. You can turn from your sin. You can cast off all the things that entangle you. And you can turn your life around. See, the sinner knows he's far from God. But the self-righteous are far from God, but don't see it. And Jesus says, that's a scarier place to be. It's a scarier place to be today, if you're here today. Rather than seeing yourself as somebody who needs God every step of the way, to be someone who says, I don't really need him. I'll call on him every once in a while if I'm, like, if I'm sick or I need like, a bill to be paid, but otherwise, I don't really need God. But for all of us, we need to realize that Jesus not only died for you, he had to die for you. The cross was necessary, and it's still necessary for us every day. See, Levi and the Pharisees actually interact. Interestingly, Levi and the Pharisees interact with the same transforming love of Jesus, yet it has different effects on them. It wasn't like the Pharisees didn't have a chance. They had it right there, right in front of them. But Levi's reaction, his tax collector's buddy's interaction is different. It has a different effect on them. Because one of them, Levi and the other tax collectors, is willing to give up everything for it, and the other wasn't. One person once said that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Jesus' transforming love melts the ice for Levi, but it hardens the clay. It hardens the hearts of the Pharisees. So what's the transforming love of Jesus doing to you right now? Does what I'm saying, what you're hearing today, melt your heart or harden it? Does hearing about God's love for the lost melt your heart or does your heart get hardened towards it? And it's important for us to remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to the margins of our world 
to rescue the marginalized in sin, you and me, by becoming marginalized himself on the cross. So that if you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, you and I no longer are far from God, but we end up being close to him. If that doesn't melt the ice of your heart, I don't know what will. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If my transforming love is not melting your heart, I can't do anything for you. See, if your heart embraces what Jesus did for you and you allow the ice to melt, you become less arrogant and more humble. Truthfully, and this has had the opposite effect, and I'm not exactly sure why, the more theology you know, the more humble you should get. Like the more you read your Bible, the more verses you know, the more humble you should get. It's not that you know these things and you know this theology, you know these verses to win some type of Bible church award. It should make us humble. And if we also truly embrace what Jesus did for us, we would do everything we can to get to Jesus. And we would abandon everything to follow him and you would go to the margins, even the margins, to save and bring God's love to the lost. Because God the Son went to the margins for you. Even if that means, even if that means, listen, that your religious friends are skeptical of it and are skeptical of you. See, love for the lost isn't an option for us. God loves the lost and so should we. So let me ask you, where is your head connected to God in love for the lost, but your heart and hands aren't? So your heart will need to change. And the, fast, the best way to do this, the way it will really do this is if you interact with the transforming love of Jesus through Scripture and in prayer. Don't just read one verse and say a quick prayer. Actually spend time meditating on it, thinking about it, processing it, and, and saying, Jesus, let me hear these words and, and just and put them in my heart. Let them take root and let me change my life. Ask how the Scripture, what it's asking of you and how you can change And as your heart changes, your hands will become more engaged with people on the margins. The spiritual marginalized. My challenge to you is to share your faith with someone this week. Who is it right now that you need to share your faith with? Or serve here at church. There's tons of people who come into our church who are marginalized, who have been kicked out of their families, who have lost everything, who no one wants to talk to them anymore, but they're here. And the best thing you can do for them in the moment is hand them a bulletin, is to spend time with their kids. Or the physically marginalized, take a meal to someone who's recently had surgery or someone who's sick. Just say, hey, I don't have to come in. I just want to drop the meal off at your house. I'll text you when it's done. Or start a prayer list. Just take a list. Every time you hear somebody sick or had surgery, write it down in your phones or on a piece of paper and just say, every morning as you're praying and you're reading your Bible, just pray for that list. Or spend time with the socially marginalized. John talked about spending time with immigrants. One in five people in Northeast Philadelphia was born outside the United States. One in five. So get involved with Grow ESL. It's a great program. It's a simple, low-hanging fruit. How do I spend time with the socially marginalized, with immigrants? John just told you that it's awesome like 20 times during that announcement. Take advantage of it. And connect with those who look and behave differently than you. I know there's people who move into your neighborhoods that look and behave differently in you, and the gut reaction, the natural reaction is to be skeptical of that person. But actually get to know them. 
Say hi. Just no, Like I said last week, no one's asking you to be besties with your neighbors, but you can be friendly, can't you? You can drop off Christmas cookies or a meal once in a while. You could pick up their newspaper and put it, the Northeast Times and put it up by their door. And do these things, do all these things, even if your religious friends are going to give you the stink eye for it. Even religious friends go, I don't know what's going on with Evan. He keeps caring for these people that we all decided together we weren't going to care for. See, God wants us to share his love with those on the margins so that they can experience forgiveness, his healing touch, his transforming love in Jesus. And he wants to use you and me to do it. Let's pray. Hey, maybe you're here today and you are spiritually marginalized. You have never put your faith and trust in Jesus. I just want to give you a moment to do that. And say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me and help me to follow you. And for the rest of us, Father, I ask that we would be people who go out on the margins, just like your son went out on the margins. And we care for those who are spiritually marginalized, physically marginalized, socially marginalized, relationally marginalized, whatever it may be, Lord, may we be people who go after them and to care for them. Because your son so much cared for us who are far off, as Ephesians 2 says, but who now have brought us near to you. We thank you for him, and it's in his name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.